welcome again another Tim's Takeaway. This time we are going to discuss the cardiovascular system. So as we dive into the cardiovascular system, this is such a popular area or such an important area um, that I want you to recall that this has its own unit exam. Basically, they have created this to be its own unit. And as we um, kind of overview this, we're going to realize that it's really important because cardiovascular disease really accounts for like every one out of three deaths. And that means that we have to be able to do some things to kind of help with that. And we're going to see that um, getting people to lead a healthier lifestyle and recognizing the signs and symptoms of people who may be having a heart attack and then um, identifying whether or not people are actually in cardiac arrest and that they need to do CPR. But we know that we as EMS providers really have to be able to kind of help with those things. And we have to uh, make sure that the public is aware of how to do CPR. So we need to train more people. And as um, evolving technology is, is truly coming out there, there are now apps that really allow us to be able to get to um, using AEDs or identifying where AEDs are at so that people can get to the scene faster than what an EMS provider may be able to do. And um, time has grown to the point now where we know that there are now cardiac specialty centers and where they're at and where they're located at and what things they can and cannot do. So usually at this point, um, we talk about the anatomy and physiology. So what I'm going to tell you is that, um, you know, for your review of this, what I would suggest is that you refer back to Tim's takeaway on the um, human body. This would be number three for a complete description of what we're talking about in, in, in the cardiovascular system. Um, it's going to give you a much better overview, and that would be something you can listen to. Um, if you've already listened to it, great. Listen to it again. Gives you a nice little refresher. But that also has video with it, so that would be up there um, with a YouTube link. All right, so we're going to move on to the, to the uh, um, you know, get into some more m meat and potatoes here of the cardiovascular issues. And this would be, you know, dealing with, what the pathophysiology is. Basically, let's talk about how things are going to work, right? So we know, or hopefully we know, that patients are experiencing, if they're experiencing heart-related chest pain, it usually is from what is going to be referred to as ischemia. And ischemia is decreased blood flow to the heart or uh, basically inefficient supply of nutrients to that part of the heart which is usually a result of a lack of oxygen. Um, so if the blood flow to this area that is having ischemia isn't restored, the tissues die. And that is where we're dealing with things. We have to really get down to the nitty gritty, find out if people are having issues and get things fixed. Um, you know, try to get those vessels back open again. Atherosclerosis is a disorder in which we end up with some cholesterol and calcium um, and plaque or that forms and builds plaque inside the walls of the blood vessels. 
Now this may actually cause a complete occlusion of that artery, that of a coronary artery, and can be in other areas of the body as well. But um, where the where we're dealing with coronary artery becomes one of our biggest issues. So it causes that there is a narrowing of the inside diameter of that artery, and the plaque builds up in there, and over time it becomes very rough and brittle. So for unknown reasons, you know, the plaque develops a crack, and this crack activates the um, platelets that are in the blood clotting system in the body, and it builds up um, a clot inside that already small, narrow vessel that now has atherosclerosis buildup. So this is where we build up part of that clot. Now, a thromboembolism is a blood clot that really floats through the blood vessels. And what happens is, is that once it reaches an area that's actually too small, it can't go any further and it gets blocked. So everything that is um, downstream from there starts to develop hypoxia. And as long as this continues, tissues are going to die. This is really what happens when people suffer from an acute myocardial infarction. And you'll see abbreviations for this as AMI or MI, which is really a heart attack. And this means that, you know, we can actually see death of the heart muscle that actually occurs. And it diminishes the body's, or I'm sorry, the heart's ability to pump effectively. And if that occurs, um, you know, they could be in cardiogenic shock or... They may also then go into an area um, that, uh, sorry, blanking. They may, if they don't go into cardiac arrest um, where the heart completely stops, they're going to have a lack of perfusion to that specific area. So in the United States, coronary artery disease is the number one cause of death for both men and women. And it usually peaks somewhere between the ages of 45 and 64. But the reality is they can strike anybody. And it can go all the way from um, the very young, meaning you know kids in their teens, um, all the way up through the 90s. And most of our risk factors are things that you know, we probably discussed previously. Um, high blood pressure, smoking, um, you know, diabetes that is not controlled. Those are issues, uh, diet and, and lack of exercise are those things that you have the ability to help control. Uncontrollable risk factors are going to be things such as gender or family history. Those types of issues are really a lot harder to control. So what we look at is that when people are experiencing an acute coronary syndrome, this is really something that describes a group of symptoms that are typically caused by something such as myocardial ischemia. doesn't necessarily always have to be a heart attack, but the ischemia can cause some type of angina. And angina is where the heart's need for oxygen exceeds the available supply. And this is usually when people are under a significant emotional stress. It doesn't even have to be significant, but you know, oh, you're having a test on this. Oh, yeah, there's some emotional stress. Um, could also be related to some type of physical stress. So usually this is a result of some type of spasm that can occur in an artery, but it is often a symptom of atherosclerosis or 
coronary artery disease. You will hear people say, oh, they have CAD, they have coronary artery disease. And sometimes this can be something that has been triggered by sudden fear. They may have had something to eat and we found, that's right, oh yeah, back to patient assessment, you ask about last meal, how long ago did they actually eat? This may lead you down that pathway of some things that may be ongoing. Now angina um, is oftentimes described as something that is more crushing, it's more of a squeezing, or you'll hear people say that um, it's like somebody is really standing on my chest or an elephant is sitting there. So usually people will say that this is kind of in a, a mid portion of their chest and usually um, behind or actually under the sternum. And it may go into the, with radiation, again, go back to assessments. You're talking about, it could go up into the arms and the jaw and um, may go into the back or could be in the epigastric area. Um, and sometimes these things can last for, you know, up to about eight minutes. But usually when you're talking about people that are experiencing some type of stable angina, um, it usually doesn't last typically longer than about 15 minutes. And it could be associated with some shortness of breath, nausea, and sweating, just as we'd seen in other ones. But this is why oftentimes with rest or um, a little bit more oxygen that they may need to have and the administration of nitroglycerin, it usually disappears. Now, angina in and of itself doesn't usually cause a problem with death um, or permanent heart damage, but it is something that needs to be taken seriously. And that's why it requires much further evaluation um, by um, experienced medical staff at the hospital to help identify what's going on. Now, unstable angina occurs as a result of really less stimuli. Um, so, you know, normally if I'm moving around, I can predict, not for real, but if I'm moving around and I predict that if I got to walk four floors, um, you know, up, up four stories to get to get to a location, that I may develop chest pain. That would be something that is um, reproducible. You know that that's going to happen. So and there's that stimulus. Unstable angina, though, really doesn't have a whole lot of things that are going to respond to it um, or, or help with a prediction. It just kind of comes and goes whenever it wants. Now, stable angina usually responds to rest or nitroglycerin, um, but just because they have... Um, responded to that does not necessarily mean that that's all that they have going on because acute myocardial infarction really is what is signifying um, you know the actual death of cells that are in the heart where blood flow is, is obstructed so once the the cells die they cannot be revived and in turn, they're going to be, they will turn to scar tissue. This dead cell will turn to scar tissue and therefore it becomes a burden um, on the beating heart because now the heart has to try to make up for this. So the ultimate goal here, or anybody who's having an acute myocardial infarction, is to actually open up that coronary artery. And they can do this one of two ways. Um, they could use a clot-busting agent, which is known as a thrombolytic drug, um, or they can do angioplasty, which is basically going in and mechanically getting that artery cleared out. That's usually where people are going into a cath lab. Regardless, these are things where it requires an immediate transport to the most appropriate facility who's able to handle this. And this is why it becomes important for us 
to make sure that we're taking a look at individuals and we're taking a look at the um, resources that we have available in our own community to help identify what's going on. Now, the pain from myocardial infarction differs from that of angina typically in about three ways. First off, it may not be caused by exertion. So it can occur at any time. And a lot of times, this could be when people were even sleeping. So one of the questions that would be great to ask if you get called about three or four in the morning is that did this wake you up or did you wake up and then have the pain? Um, it becomes important because if it wakes us up from sleep, that's significant pain. That's, uh, that's something that really our body's now triggering us. You need to go get help. The second thing is, is that it doesn't resolve in a few minutes. Usually this is something that lasts longer than about 30 minutes and can be several hours. So, um, you know, in, in, it kind of sounds horrible that we sit here and talk about people that are like 30 minutes or an hour or two until they actually reach medical, medical care, and that can create a big problem. And finally, it may or may not be relieved by somebody sitting down and taking a load off or um, taking nitroglycerin. So it really comes down to there's some different ways in which we start taking a look at people that are maybe experiencing a myocardial infarction. And by the way, not all patients who have a myocardial infarction or an AMI are going to have pain or even recognize when it occurs. So this means that we need to be aware of things. You know, you look for um, some of the physical signs and symptoms that truly are ongoing. I mean, when you talk about the things such as general appearance, I mean, here you're talking about whether or not somebody is, is experiencing some nausea, vomiting, is that where you find them? Are you um, looking at somebody who may have pale or ashen skin? You know, what's going on with their cardiac output? Is it showing that now they're, they're moving circulation from the skin to somewhere else? Check out their pulse. If you're checking out their pulse, most of the time, um, we notice that their pulse rate has increased. But also, in some cases, it may actually have decreased, and those are things we can take a look at as well. Um, and bradycardia is something that may actually occur as a result of a particular type of myocardial infarction as to where, where it's actually at. Um, other things you may identify is that whether or not that heart rate may be irregular and they didn't have that before. Their blood pressure may fall a little bit because of cardiac output being diminished um, and particularly if the left ventricle is, is, is becoming involved. However, a lot of patients have a normal blood pressure, and in some cases, it may even be elevated. If their respirations or their breathing, um, usually they're doing okay with those things, but if they start to develop heart failure, um, this is where you know they are now starting to back up some fluid into their lungs, and it becomes congested, so that's why you hear people call it congestive heart failure, even though in today's medical um, society we're trying to we're trying to identify that as just heart failure um, and finally you know people that have um, myocardial infarction sometimes their mental status changes um, they become very anxious and this is when they um, feel like they um, are going to die and by the way when people tell you that it is very advisable that you go ahead and, and believe them right um, so be careful about that. Now, myocardial infarctions can have three serious issues. They can have sudden death. They can end up in cardiogenic shock, which we talked about a little bit ago. 
um, or they may end up in congestive heart failure. And actually, hmm, now that I'm thinking about that, I believe that we just dealt with those things earlier, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, did we? think we did. I think we did talk a little bit about that earlier. So um, we talk about issues such as sudden sudden death, dealing with cardiac arrest, cardiogenic shock. We'll talk more about that here in a little bit. And heart failure, we're going to come back and address that as well because um, everybody just loves that to no end. Well, there's this thing known as a dysrhythmia. So um, if you go back to the anatomy part, we identified that uh, there is electrical conduction system within the heart. And if um, something is actually going on with that heart in the electrical system, it becomes a dysrhythmia. Um, dysrhythmia means that it is pretty much out of, out of whack. When you get to arrhythmia, it really means it's without a rhythm. Um, those terms usually in medicine are used interchangeably. So, uh, you know, just be careful of that. You'll be like, oh my gosh, what are they talking about? Well, there are some things that can happen in dysrhythmia. Some of these things you can actually identify. So one is a premature ventricular contraction, otherwise known as a PVC. These are some extra beats, and usually it is a result of some type of problem that's occurring within the ventricles. And in a lot of people, it is something that is pretty harmless. Um, we used to track this as to how many times they had these, and and um, you know we've we've identified that those really we're not looking at those as much as we used to. But tells us that, uh, you know, ischemia is usually one of the biggest issues for that. So lack of oxygen. Tachycardia um, is a rapid heart rate that can be over 100. That is a dysrhythmia. It is something that's it's greater than normal. Bradycardia, talked about that just a second ago, um, said that it's a heart rate that's going to be less than 60. Now, those two things, again, you're reaching down, you're feeling for a pulse. You may be able to identify a fast heart rate or a slow heart rate. Now, one that is uh, something that's very difficult for you to identify through an assessment is ventricular tachycardia. Um, without really hooking up a heart monitor to identify what's going on, but these are things that may be at about a rate of 150 to 200. And a problem with ventricular tachycardia is that I like to say that it comes in three flavors. It comes with people who have a pulse and are doing okay with it. Um, they're going to need some medications a little bit later on. We have the second type, which is people who have a pulse, but they're not perfusing very well, and they're going to need some other form of treatment, such as electricity sent through their body while they're alive. Not a fun thing. And the third one is, is that they come up as a flavor of there is no pulse with it. So they are actually then dead. And that gets electricity from an automated external defibrillator. So additionally, so the AED looks for a VTAC, um, and that's why it is important to make sure that there is no pulse before you put an AED on. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Ventricular fibrillation is a disorganized, ineffective quivering of the ventricles or of the, almost the entire heart. So there is no blood being pumped through the body. And the patient is unconscious within a few seconds. Um, and the way to fix this is defibrillation. Now, defibrillation is the process of actually shocking the heart. We're utilizing electrical current to try and restore the normal cardiac rhythm. And CPR is of the utmost importance for this, that until that AED or the defibrillator is available, 
CPR must be initiated. And the reason that we talk about making sure that CPR is being initiated at this point is because for every minute that we go without defibrillation, um, we actually identify that we lose 10% survivability. And when you do CPR or when you perform CPR on an individual, you're actually helping to really prolong this time a little bit. Now, asystole is going to be the absence of all electrical activity within the heart. And uh, this usually means that, you know, there's just been a long period of ischemia and patients um, who have asystole, um, you know, usually die. But uh, just remember that, you know, in the out-of-hospital setting, we have in a lot of people, really, for the most part, um, can uh, are going to be, there are anomalies that we need to take a look at. So it's not always the dead-dead rhythm, but it is obviously something that uh, really does not have a great prognosis. Now, we had mentioned earlier about cardiogenic shock, and, and we'll come back into that here real quick. And this is talking about the, the body tissues are not getting enough nutrients and oxygen from the heart. And usually, this is a result of something like a heart attack. And usually, when it deals with um, uh, a problem from a myocardial infarction, this is dealing with the inferior or posterior portions of the heart, and particularly the left ventricle. When those things are involved, it actually creates more of a pump problem, um, and now we're not able to produce or provide enough nutrients to the body, and this is why we now go into cardiogenic shock. The heart now can't function very well, and it is therefore not meeting the demands of the body. Now, congestive heart failure, on the other hand, occurs typically within the first few days of suffering a myocardial infarction. And you will hear people refer, we call it again, just as I said there a minute ago, congestive heart failure. And it is called congestion because the lungs become congested with some fluid. And this is pulmonary edema, which we can identify or review again from the respiratory system. And this is because the heart fails to be able to pump effectively. And this is something that can occur suddenly or it can go over time. It can be over a few months. Um, but usually this is a result of chronic hypertension. This is from um, maybe diseased heart valves or people that are not um, taking care of their hypertension. And it does affect the left ventricle, and it just can no longer um, pump effectively. Now, as I said, that's something that can occur suddenly or over time. But if it acu if occurs acutely, it, accuse, it occurs right away, um, this usually develops some type of pulmonary edema that's accompanied with it. And this is um, usually pink frothy sputum that they have along with severe shortness of breath. Now, uh, depending on where you're at, fluid, it can actually be in dependent areas of the body. And it's usually, you know, at the feet, legs, things like that. Hypertensive emergencies are things in which we really can involve the systolic blood pressure of being greater than 180. Now, I think a lot of times in class I talk about, you know, um, hypertensive emergencies are going to be over 180. But once you get over a blood pressure of about 160, I mean, you really got to start to think that something else is happening. Um, what is the reason for this individual having a heart uh, systolic blood pressure that high?
These folks that are having hypertensive emergencies may have issues such as not only being hypertensive, they are at significant risk for stroke. Um, they're also at significant risk for having an aortic aneurysm. And uh, they oftentimes complain of some, they can oftentimes complain of a headache, but uh, we really need to roll out to make sure that there's not other issues ongoing as well. Um, aortic aneurysm really is a uh, weakness that is in the wall of the aorta, and it is very susceptible to rupture. So go back real quick and just realize that inside all of the vessels, there is multiple um, layers. So there has been a crack in one of those layers and blood is now accumulating. And as a result, if this continues, it can rupture. And if it ruptures, this means that the blood loss is going to basically cause the patient to die almost immediately because remember, your aorta is the largest um, artery that we have in our body. And if we have a dissecting aneurysm, this uh, is where the inner layers of the, that aorta become separated and it is allowing blood flow at high pressures to continue to get in there. Um, so it, is, it, it could be dissecting where it's just breaking apart uh, they're not completely ruptured, but it could be leaking as well. And uncontrolled hypertension is one of the big issues with this. So, so far, um, hopefully you've recognized that, you know, we got to be pretty darn careful with these things because um, high blood pressure seems to be one of the biggest areas that we need to take a look at. Now, um, it is important for you to recognize that a lot of times when we're dealing with patients who um, are complaining of chest pain, that if they are complaining of a sharper tearing pain and pain that really came on all of a sudden and stated about a 10 out of 10 or it was the worst pain immediately, um, doesn't go away at all and they may have some pain in between their shoulder blades um, and you may notice that there's a discrepancy between the blood pressure on one side of the body versus the other, you gotta start thinking that this is an aneurysm and this is going to be a problem for us. So. That's things or those are things that we definitely want to talk about uh, or identify, I should say not necessarily talk about, but identify as you go through patient assessment. So another thing that would be in this area is that, you know, I could go through and describe everything that we need to do with a normal patient assessment. Um, you know, those are I'm going to defer back to, you know, you're going to look at your book. Um, you're going to go back and ask the sample OPQRST questions and we're going to make sure that our patients um, are doing well. If we need to apply oxygen and, and uh, find out what else is going on with our patient, that is fantastic. But for that patient assessment area, again, we're going to do our standard sample OPQRST. Um, we're going to probably look more at a focused exam. We're going to listen to breath sounds. We're going to check out the cardiovascular system. We're going to check out the respiratory system. We're going to listen for breath sounds because remember, if they're in heart failure, we're going to be dealing with people who have fluid inside their lungs. So let's talk about some of the treatment that we can be dealing with in relationship to people who may have chest pain or discomfort. So we want to first off ensure that we put these folks in a great position of comfort. Allow them to sit up is usually where they're, where they're most likely want to be. If they need oxygen, um, you know, we want to look at an oxygen saturation. Typically, we're looking at if it's over 94%, um, we're, we're doing okay. But if we need to, you can use a nasal cannula for those patients that are having mild shortness of breath or mild dyspnea. 
using a non-rebreather mask for patients that are having more severe respiratory problems. And then, of course, if the patient is unconscious and they're not breathing well and not exchanging uh, or ventilating well, then we need to fix that with, uh, with a bag valve mask or more positive pressure ventilation, right? So um, you can also then administer aspirin to our patients. Um, aspirin is uh, used in this manner to provide um, antiplatelet properties. So what we mean by that is we don't want the platelets to stick together. So let's go back real quick and talk about the fact that with atherosclerosis, when that plaque builds up or and then cracks, and um, when now the platelets are coming in there and they're, they're trying to fix that, which is what they're supposed to do. The problem though is, is that we don't want it to occur in that small vessel. So what ends up happening is, is that we need to come in we need to make sure that we can give some aspirin to them and it prevents the platelets from sticking together, right? So typical dose for these folks are gonna be anywhere between uh, um, 160 and 325 of aspirin, which is uh, should be baby aspirin, chew it up, um, it needs to at least be non-enterocoded aspirin. And here you're given anywhere between uh, two to four baby aspirin and having them chew it up. If you're talking about um, finding out if the patient has some nitroglycerin. If it's available, they may have it in a spray or they may have it in a tablet form. Um, and what nitroglycerin does is it actually causes vasodilation. So it's going to take the coronary arteries and we're going to open them up. And as it opens it up, it allows more blood to flow and therefore it helps improve uh, the perfusion into that ischemic area. Now, a big side effect to this is that it can actually drop a patient's blood pressure. So we want to make sure that we keep an eye on blood pressures. We want to make sure that it's just as we talked about assessment earlier, you need to assess your patients before you go give medications to anybody. We need to make sure that they're okay. Because a contraindication for the use of nitroglycerin is um, a blood pressure that is less than 100. And we also need to make sure that they have not taken any erectile dysfunction medications in the last 24 to 48 hours. So um, make sure that when you administer or assist with their nitroglycerin, and again, remember that assist is they have it. It is their patient medication. So you're just helping them. You're helping yourself to give it to them, basically, is what it is. Um, so make sure the medication isn't expired or it's not contaminated before you give it to them, and make sure that it is truly prescribed to them. And then you want to make sure that you wear your gloves because it can be absorbed through the skin and you don't need to be suffering those side effects such as a headache or a low blood pressure. I think another area that we'll have to deal with um, in a separate podcast or vodcast probably for this one would be a cardiac monitoring, how to set that up. So we'll take a look at that um, at another time and we'll set that up for a vodcast, I think, so that you can see where we're going with, the, with those things. And in the meantime, we need to talk about the way that technology has really enhanced and allowed us to do some different things, such as our dealing with uh, people who have heart surgeries or cardiac assist devices. So, you know, over the last 30 to 40 years, we've seen a significant change in the way that we have treated patients having heart attacks. Um, one of those things is having open heart surgery uh, where they may have a coronary artery bypass graft, or you'll hear people refer to it as CABG, C-A-B-G. 
Um, this is where they take a blood vessel from uh, typically a leg and it is sewn into uh, the aorta or to a coronary artery, usually beyond some point of obstruction. So they're doing a bypass. And you've heard some people talk about the fact that, oh, they've had two or three of those or four of those, and I've heard people with those as well, um, where they've had these quadruple bypass surgeries that have occurred. Um, other things that people look at is, is they may have some type of angioplasty, and this is where they take a, a, a balloon and it is put along um, uh, a long, thin tube, and this is then usually inserted through either the groin or through a radial artery, and it is then um, threaded through to the where the uh, um, where the blockage is going to be. The balloon is then inflated. It moves the plaque out of the way, and then the balloon is then eventually deflated. And sometimes they'll put a little wire mesh stent in to keep that vessel open. And uh, sometimes you will hear people say, "Oh, they have a drug eluding stent," which basically means that they have a um, think of it as a small little uh, wire cage that keeps everything open, but we don't want it to clot off and don't want the body to fight against it. So they'll use um, a, a things such as uh, Eliquis, Coumadin, um, I'm trying to think of Plavix. Those are some of the medications that you may hear people say, oh, they're on a blood thinner, and that may be why. Um, people that usually have some type of bypass graft, though, usually you will notice they have a very long scar on their chest. And you know what? It just gives you a better indication of what's going on. You understand that they have a problem there. But you end up treating them the exact same way. Just because they have those things does not mean that uh, we have to treat them any different. And then there are patients who have cardiac pacemakers that are put in. And these pacemakers are uh, ways in which it can help regulate the cardiac rhythm. Um, it also is trying to make it more regular and it's also trying to have a better rate so we don't want it too slow and we don't want it too fast. Um, these are battery powered and it creates an electrical impulse. There's wires that are put directly into the heart itself. Um, and for us, you know, we probably don't have to deal a lot about it, um, but you may have or you may notice that um, in their chest there is usually a uh, under a fold of skin Usually in the uh, upper portion of the chest, you will notice that there is this, uh, this, this device that is planted underneath the skin. Biggest thing for us is to make sure that we do not put um, the AED patches over top that because we can damage it as well. Um, there's other things such as an implantable cardiac defibrillator where uh, patients who may have survived a cardiac arrest um, as a result of ventricular fibrillation, or they have other medical conditions that have uh, caused a problem which they now um, need to be under uh, constant supervision by a machine to watch their heart rate. Um, and if it gets out of whack, it can send electricity into the heart and try to reset it, much like um, I talked about ventricular tachycardia earlier, um, and it'll do the same thing. Uh, one of the newer things that are out, and actually I think the next two things will be more of the newer things that are out, um, external defibrillator vests. And uh, uh, right now I'm only familiar with one that is, uh, uh, that is called a life vest, and it's made by Zoll. And basically what it is is it is a vest that is, uh, has built-in monitoring electrodes and defibrillation pads in. And the patient wears this underneath their clothing. And it's attached to a monitor um, that is uh, either on their belt or is from a shoulder strap. 
and it is continuously monitoring what's going on. Um, if it notices that uh, there's a problem and it, and it advises that there may need to be a shock, then uh, it warns the patient, and if necessary, it will also then deliver the defibrillation. One of our last areas that we're going to take a look at in this section is going to be what is known as an LVAD, a LVAD, which stands for left ventricular assist devices. Now, these are used to help the left ventricle um, in patients who have severe heart failure. So they may need to have a heart transplant. Um, they may need uh, something that's maybe just a temporary boost. Um, but this is something that really is pulsatile, or, or, um, you, or I'm sorry, it's usually a continuous flow. So the patient or the family may be able to tell you a lot more about the device. Um, and for most folks that have an LVAD in, they also have additional um, information that's usually sent to the ambulance service, we hope anyway. Um, and there are guides such as at mylvad.org. Um, which um, will give you a great resource for things that you can take a look at. But they usually always have the battery packs with the patient as well as chargers, and those are things that we need to make sure that we take with us to the hospital when we're transporting these. So the only thing that we really have two sections left for cardiovascular, and that's going to be dealing with cardiac, cardiac arrest. That uh, should be up next, and then we also are going to create a podcast for you in which it is showing you how to place monitor leads on patients. All right, so uh, stay tuned for those, and we'll see you a little bit later on. Peace.